Wait, testing, 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 testing. All right, sorry we're a little late. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to gather in a place that it's free and it's not under any kind of uh, oppression. We're grateful to be in uh, a place where we have access to your word and we pray as we study Revelation today uh, that you will help us comprehend all the things you want us to know going to talk a lot about different elements today relative to the uh, last view of verse 18. And so we just pray your spirit will be with us now. Help us as we reflect upon your word and uh, consider it and uh, sit in silence and consider our relationship to you as we will be with you in no short time for eternity. And we just want to prepare our hearts and minds for that. We pray for uh, those who are struggling, Lord. And... Uh, Make your presence known to them and help them to draw closer to you because of it. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Bart Ehrman is a very well-educated, uh, he studied under a guy named Bruce Metzger, who was probably the greatest Greek scholar we have in our modern day. He died, I think, about four years ago. But he got his, uh, Bart Ehrman got his uh, bachelor's uh, from Moody, and he got his uh, master's in Greek from Wheaton, and then uh, his uh, PhD from Princeton Theological seminary and he studied New Testament manuscripts of the Greek for probably 30 years and he has turned uh, against the faith and for a number of different reasons none of which I see as reason to turn from the faith but he does um, but nevertheless he has made he has made an observation which I think is interesting and he said that if we are going to decide that Jesus is God then we can do that absolutely, and we can do it through the Gospel of John, where we have all the I am's. But he said, it's really interesting that in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if, if that's all we had, we would never, ever be able to come up with the Jesus is God uh, message in the sense of the Greek. And so his conclusion, which I think is errant, is that John is a fiction and that the Gospel of John was created uh, to kind of superimpose this idea <clears throat> that Jesus is God and that John is the one who put all the I am scripture, scriptures in there. I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, Thomas said, my Lord, my God. Uh, all of the ones before Abraham was, I am. That's all in John. And so he, he's come up and he believes that it's just that the Gospel of John's a fabrication. I have uh, understanding if, you, if we think that the Gospel of John was written when it was and that Revelation was written when it was. However, the study of Revelation has opened my eyes to John, what John has said about Christ coming to him in this Revelation has been, he is I am. He is everything he said he was. 
And the light came on to me that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the writers of those three synoptic gospels, they didn't know yet. They didn't understand yet the message of who Christ was. And so when they wrote, they did not include that very central message, which would come out if they understood it. But John, I think, understood who Jesus is. And because of that, when he wrote his gospel, having had this revelation earlier than even 60 AD, but way back in the 40s, as we talked about over the past few weeks, that he certainly could have had the revelation, he could have shared it with Paul, and he would have had insight into remembering and recalling the things Jesus said that indicate who he is in a deific fashion. And I just find it very interesting how important the dating of this revelation is. That if it's way out in 95, then Ehrman has some grounds to suggest this was a fabricated gospel. But if it was, the revelation was received when we think it was, we have reason to believe why John would have added insight into the identity of Christ when he wrote his gospel. It's because he's had this revelation. He's seen firsthand who Jesus says he is. I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and the omega. And John has seen this, and so right in his gospel, he included those things in it. So it's just something interesting as you know, biblical critics and scholars, they bring forth their stuff. And we can offset that as we study the scripture and understand what it's saying. All right, digging back into last week, we read at uh, verse 18, I, Jesus says to John, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen. And then he adds, these are the key phrase that we talked about, and have the keys of the death and of, uh, of the Hades and of the death. That's how the Greek reads it, and the hell is Hades there. And so I suggested in the relation to Jesus having the keys to both the Hades and the death, that we ought to know what this would mean, how it applies to the idealist and the historist and the futurist and the partial, tr- uh, partial preterist views, uh, which maintain Jesus still has to come back, and so therefore Hades... The covered place is still in action today. It's going on now. Someone dies yesterday. They went to heaven or they went to Hades. And this futuristic view is still in place under those uh, views, idealist, historist, partial preterist, and futurist, that they went to hell or they went to heaven. And if they went to Hades, the covered place, Hades will give up its dead. And then comes the final judgment. And then comes the lake of fire casting into. That is the way those views all explain it. Uh, And we ended last week asking, if Jesus holds the keys to death, to the death, what death are we talking about? And we, I said, you know, is it the physical death via his resurrection for all humankind? We know scripture says it is. So we know that he has the keys to all physical death. Is it spiritual death? That means we were born spiritually dead. We have to be born again. And does he have the keys to that? Yes, he does. We have faith on him. We're spiritually born again. So he has the key to spiritual death. And then I asked if Jesus holds the keys to what scripture describes as the second death. Does he hold the keys to the second death, which is known as the lake of fire? And uh, to this, I say yes. Jesus holds the keys to the second death too. And we're gonna talk more about that today in the other way people see 
Hades and the Lake of Fire, and that's from the full, full, completed preterist view. Now, eschatologically speaking, since Jesus has not returned, since Jesus has not returned according to the idealist, historist, and all those other views besides the full preterist, uh, then we have to suggest that all who have died since Jesus ascended, all the way up till this second, either have gone to heaven or they have gone to the Hades. They have gone to the covered place. That's the way to see it. And I suggest that in the Hades, they are not experiencing, and we talked about this last week, the fires uh, and the burning and everything, but suggest that they are experiencing the absence of light. They're in a covered place, and they're experiencing, if they're there, uh, I don't want to say cold, they don't have physical bodies, but they're experiencing dark, gloomy, dreariness. This was the Jews' view of Sheol in the bad part of it. Because according to the general consensus of these views, Jesus, of those views we mentioned on the board, Jesus is going to need to return. And when he does, he is going to initiate some very important things. Uh, the end of everything, that will be one thing he'll initiate. And as we read last week in Revelation 20, even Hades then is going to give up its dead, initiated by Jesus' return, and that will initiate the great white throne judgment, which will initiate the books being open, which will initiate people being thrown into the lake of fire. And so, and, and that's what we're all kind of waiting for from the idealist, the partial preterist, the futurist, and the historist uh, view. All right, so on the board, um, really quickly, Mary, you're supposed to be up with me now. Oh, Mary. Okay. So last week, pre-second coming of Christ, Jesus has the key to Hades and the keys to death, but we have the idealist, and we have the historist, and we have the uh, partial preterist, and... Uh, we have the uh, futurist, okay? And from that, we can say this about uh, the key to Hades. All who have died since Christ have gone to heaven or Hades. If the Hades, they are waiting for the final judgment to come, and at that time, this will be the second resurrection or third or whatever resurrection it will be. It won't be the first resurrection. Hades will give up its dead. That's Jesus has the keys to it. It will give up its dead. One collective give up and everybody will be judged. Okay? And then these views regarding this when it comes to uh, the death, the orthodox view suggests the following in relation to Jesus having the keys to death. This is how they would view it. Jesus overcame physical death for all who will be resurrected, some to eternal life, some to eternal damnation. Spiritual death is overcome by faith in Christ in this life. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven ever, and he has to be or she has to be born again in this life. Once someone dies physically, their future is set. If they go to heaven, that is where they will eternally remain. If you, if you died just now in the hospital, if you didn't go to heaven, you would go to the Hades, and your future is going to be Hades 
lake of fire. That is the traditional Orthodox way, modern Orthodox way today of how they are viewing Hades and the death. And uh, Jesus has no keys to the second death in the Orthodox view. Jesus says to John, I have the keys to the Hades and the death, but the Orthodox view would say, not to the lake of fire, that second death, there's no keys because there's no letting in or, or letting out, they are in there forever. And therefore these views believe the second death is eternal. And there's a, there's a segment of Christian faith that say, in that place there is annihilation of the soul. They are in the second death and they burn up forever. And then there are others who say, no, the soul goes on forever and ever and ever in flames that ascend up and they never end and they are in torment for eternity. Those are the two main orthodox views of what happens in the second death once Haiti gives up uh, its dead. Okay, in the face of all this, we took the time to examine the term the second death. And one of the first things we saw in the book of Revelation was it's only used there, and we, we discovered that it's also known as the lake of fire. So we know that it is the burning, consuming place. The Hades is not, the second death is. We also learned from scripture that those who are part of the first resurrection will not be hurt in the second death. That's the way it was put. They will not be hurt in the second death. So that implies those who are participating in the second death are going to experience pain or hurt somehow, spiritually, I doubt it's physically. And those who are cast into the lake of fire, the second death, will have their part, is what scripture says, their portion of that lake of fire. And we learn that the lake of fire, the second death, is in the presence of the lamb and his angels. So we know that this place is in the presence of God. It is a heavenly abode, the lake of fire, the second death. It's not an underground in the center of the earth place. That was the Sheol, the Hades part. And that this final place is a place of fire and brimstone. Terms I'm not gonna go into with the Greek, but they're very revealing. And all who are guilty, and Revelation gave a list of uh, numerated sins. It says those who are this, those who are that. It says all liars. It says the unbelieving. It gives a whole litany of, of things. And we read those last week. We'll go there, which I take to mean as people who have not been covered by the blood uh, and have not admitted Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Okay. So again, relative to the views in the first box, many evangelicals get Hades, the dark place, mixed up with the lake of fire or the second death, forgetting that scripture says plainly that both death and the Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. So we know that Sheol, the Hades, is not eternal. Jesus has the keys to that, not eternal. All right, so there's a quick thumbnail on last week's coverage of Hades, death, the second death, and how most Christians today view them as still being effective and still ongoing in the lives of people out 2,000 years post the life and teachings of Christ, uh, teach, live teachings of Christ. Mostly because they do not believe Jesus has returned and the descriptions of Revelation chapters 19 through 22 have yet to occur. And when we get to those chapters, most 
people in the faith believe that 19 through 20 to the end of Revelation have yet to occur, all right? And that's why the people on that board believe the lake of fire, the great right throne judgment, and all of that has yet to occur, okay? So now then, on the other side here, the second coming of Christ, post-second coming of Christ, we have a group of believers, I happen to be one of them, that falls into the full preterist category, also known as Killianism, and because a guy, last name Killia, I think, years and decades and centuries ago also believed in this, and that means that I believe scripture is fulfilled. I think it's true, I think it's a perfect account, of, well, it's a, it's a great account of what's happened, but I think it's fulfilled in our day and age. And so, um, let's talk about elements of the full preterist view relative to Jesus having the keys to Hades and the death. And the problem is, I have to admit this, I honestly do not study isms, or is, except maybe Mormonism, and so I don't know what the official full preterist views contain. These guys are like, you're like Calvinists, they're experts. They have every scripture down and they, they can weave a beautiful story. I can't do that and I've never studied it to learn to do that. I just have the view from my study of scripture. So I honestly am not going to be able to say this concurs with the full preterist view or not because my views from full preterism come really just from reading scripture and from what I can see. And I didn't know about full preterism by studying Don Preston or these other people who teach it. Um, so all we can do is share what full preterism looks like based on the, my limited amount of knowledge. But I also have limited amount of knowledge in the historists and the idealist view, so that's kind of being fair. And, um, and talk about what it means to someone who believes that Jesus has already returned with judgment and reward, that Hades has given up its dead, that the lake of fire judgment has occurred and that those who were in the Hades were cast into the lake of fire and then what it means from that point forward out to today. So the reason why my views are in all probability not in complete harmony with the full preterist view is uh, I w I'm what you would call a total reconciliationist and admittedly what that means is I believe that God does not lose anybody uh, ever to eternal punishment forever and ever. I believe that all are reconciled to him. This does not mean all are his sons and daughters, that all are saved. This does not mean universal salvation. It just simply means I believe that there is a total reconciliation of the universe to God and that God has the victory through Christ, etc., etc. So uh, I, I don't call it universalism because today in our day, Universalism means all roads lead to God. Jesus or not, it's okay. I would never, ever, ever suggest that. Uh, and all roads do not lead to God. And Jesus is the only way. So right there, there's a caveat with my form of reconciliationism. Uh, all I'm saying is that I believe through Christ Jesus, all will be brought out of whatever future place of punishment awaits them. Again, universalists often deny a future punishment. Universalists say there is no afterlife punishment. It's all just, hey, it's, you know, it's just been done. It's all groovy, it's good. And I don't say that either. 
So because we have read that Jesus has the keys to the Hades and the death, I am of the opinion, taking Paul's admonition to believe all things and to hope all things, this is where my views come from, I believe and I hope, and I am convinced in this, in my mind of this, so I teach it this way, because we have to be convinced in our mind of it, that he will use the keys in the second death that he will use his key to the Hades and to death, and perhaps even especially in relation to the second death, and that once the most rebellious have received him, once their knees have bowed, their tongues have confessed, he will let them out, just as he let all out from the Hades, and they will be reconciled to God. Now remember that we read last week about those who do not encounter the lake of fire. Those believers here on earth who die and go to heaven who do not go pass through this lake of fire. It says, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection, that's believers here on earth who die, on such the second death has no power. There's a power in that that second death, that they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him of a thousand years, which in Hebrew language means forever. So note that just total reconciliationism does not say that those who come out of the second death will reign with God as priests. It doesn't mean that those who are in there, uh, uh, that the power of the second death doesn't affect them. It does. And they do not come out as God's uh, uh, priests that will reign with him in Christ forever. There's a high, high, high price to pay for rejecting Christ, okay? And, and so I don't downplay the idea of afterlife uh, punishment, but the punishment has a purpose. And here we see that there's a great difference between those in the first resurrection who will be priests and heirs and will reign with Christ and those who are cast into the second death that will have power over them. So, reconciliation does not mean all saved. Saved? Saved from what? Saved from afterlife punishment? No. Uh, it doesn't mean all will be glorified. It doesn't mean all will be honored as a son or daughter of Christ. It doesn't mean all will become priests who will reign with uh, Christ. Those are just those of the first resurrection. Um, but it does mean all will be reconciled after being purged in the fire, which I believe is the fire of the presence of God. Now, purged, reconciled, what is all this about? Don't lose track here. We are talking about all of this because Jesus has plainly, plainly said to John, I have the keys, plural, to the Hades and the death. Okay? The Hades is afterlife. I believe the death is afterlife death he's talking about too. I have the keys, he says. Since he admitted this, we need to explore what this means. So I try to avoid the term universalism uh, because it says no punishment. What I wanna do is kinda go through our, my, the way I view epistemology, which is the way we know things. This, I always say this, and it's a bromide that I stand by, the spirit is primary and preferential when it comes to understanding truth. But when it comes to this subject, the spirit has not brought us to a unity of the faith. So that's insufficient in and of itself. So then the second thing we do is we turn to the word of God as a reference to see what it says. The spirit tells me, you know, I think this, but what does the word say? 
Unfortunately, the word and the various interpretations of it give us all these views, and the word in and of itself does not solve the impasse between believers on this subject of afterlife punishment. So we don't have the Spirit telling us uh, all. We don't have the Word verifying to all of us, so we have to do something else. And when that happens, we go to the third source, and that's early church history. And I think you'll be surprised at the information I'll share with you about total reconciliation. It's not a new kid on the block. I didn't come up with it, and the guys who believe in it did not come up with it. Now, it was more than present in the early church. And similarly, we note that from the writings of the early church leaders, eternal torment, the idea of afterlife punishment forever and ever and ever, doesn't show up until the year of about 500 AD. That's when we start to get eternal torments and punishment. Now, there's a vast amount of research and information on the stuff, uh, and I've read some of it, but... The doctrine of eternal torment is not found anywhere in Judaism. So there's our precursor. When it came to Judaism, Sheol was a covered place. Yes, it had a prison, but it was not a place of eternal torment. David said, I know you won't leave my soul in hell. That is Sheol, that is Hades. I know you won't leave me there. Sometime after the close of the Old Testament and in and around Jesus' time, the idea begin to creep into the thought and writings of people, and it's believed it came directly from paganism. The pagans were the ones who believed that God would eternally punish, torment souls who were disobedient to him and his word. Jesus and the apostles were more about sharing the good news, about warning about end times and apologetics than they were about uh, eternal afterlife punishment. So we don't have much data on that. When Jesus talked about uh, escaping Guiana. It was more about how are you going to escape the end time that's coming upon you. So we don't have much there, even though people seem to think they do when they read the English translation of the New Testament. By the time we get to those who refer to as the early church fathers, who I don't call early church fathers, total reconciliationism through Christ was the predominant view. You can check it. Go online. Do your homework. And it was a view that came from Scripture. It wasn't a view that came from the pagans around them. Uh, so again, turning to the earliest church leaders, the ones who were well-versed in Greek, this is important because that's the language the New Testament was written in. They were well-versed in Greek. Almost all did not believe in an endless torment for the sake of retribution. This was not present in the writings of the early church leaders. Eternal punishment for the sake of retribution. It is everywhere in the church today. I mean, that's all there is, really, except for some divergent views like, like mine and others. But they believed in limited, corrective punishment. Uh, why? Because it was based on their understanding of the Greek. Their understanding of the Greek words let them believe that punishment after this life had a duration to it, it had a purpose to it, and it acted as a way to wipe away and erode the calloused hearts of those who were going to experience it in the lake of fire. Augustine, the first church father, to really promote, he's the guy who started to truly promote eternal torments and punishment. 
to the exclusion of other beliefs. Now, Augustine was like 480, I think. I think 480, 383, 480. No, I don't, 350, I don't know now, I'm having a blank. But here's the thing about Augustine, he hated the Greek. He couldn't really even read Greek, but what he knew was Latin. And so when the power of the church shifted from Greek fathers and people who could read and understand Greek to a more Latin-based Roman Empire, Constantine, post-350 AD view, we start to get more and more ideas uh, on, from the Latin of a teaching that was largely corrupted because of a misinterpretation of how the Greek was to be understood. And this is the same concept with free will. The idea of no free will is absent from the early church father's writings. In fact, we can quote almost every church father saying, man has the will to choose. It's it's all through the early, we covered this on our show a week ago. It's all through there. But when we start to get into the Latin church and we start to get into Constantinople and then the Roman Catholics and time goes by, free will is lost because Augustine and his thoughts were there's no free will. And then Calvin, 15, uh, 500 years, 1500 years later, borrows from uh, Augustine's writing and we come up with Calvinism. So check free will and see about early church fathers. If we can't agree with it by the spirit and we can't agree with free will by the word, then we go to the third way we can discern what is truth and we look at the early church fathers and free will was everywhere. And meaning you are responsible. And it's called the synergist approach. God offers, we receive versus the monergist reproach, which is approach which is God gives and you have to accept. Okay, that was never there in the early church fathers. Anyway, by 200 AD, there are three schools of thoughts, 200 years after Christ. There are three schools of thoughts concerning afterlife punishment. The first, endless punishment. It was there, but it was not widely taught at all. Annihilation, the wicked go and they are burned up to a crisp and don't exist anymore. And total reconciliation. Those were the three main predominant views. But it's interesting that three even existed, but they did. That's 200 years after Christ. However, prior to this, there was not much controversy over total reconciliation being in existence. Now, I'm gonna mention a bad name when it comes to early church leaders. His name's Oregon. Well, I say origin, but it's Oregon from what I understand, like the state. He was the first to kind of systematize Christianity. And he was so off base on, in ways that they ultimately condemned him. And, but he was a total reconciliationist. Now, the interesting thing about him is that his reconciliationism was never, ever a subject of condemnation about him. They never, ever said, and also this guy believes. So while he did have heretical ideas relative to the other church, they never took origin and said, your views on what happens to the wicked after this life are just reprehensible. We know they're gonna burn forever. They never even questioned his reconciliationism. Reconciliationism wasn't even attacked until around 540 AD in writings when eternal torments took hold around the Middle Ages. We're starting to get into this time, you know, and then we start to pay and pay monies to get people out of these places and purgatory. And up until this time, the most uh, revered early church leaders were staunch and I'll just say universalists, meaning in the way they would see it, not the way we, we would say it, and they supported their views from Greek scripture. 
So let me raffle off some bullet points concerning that subject. First of all, Clement of Alexandria was a total reconciliationist. He is noted for his mind about the gospel. Clement of Alexandria, uh, total reconciliationist. He and Origen, they were like the uh, lead scholar types who pitched it, but the catacombs give us great insight because if you go and look at what the common man, what they thought about the afterlife, none of the catacombs say anything about torments. All of them talk about the ultimate hope of a total reconciliation, the ultimate belief that all will be brought back into God's uh, presence. Uh, Clement declares that all punishment, however severe, was purifactory is the word he would use. It's for purification. And this is probably where the Catholics got the idea of uh, purgatory. And that even the torments of the damned are curative. They're curative. They have a purpose and a place. We have our free will, the synergistic approach. God has his will. God's gonna win. But he's gonna give us our way as long as we want, but he's gonna keep imposing his will until we break, and that's the idea. Uh, Oregon even describes Gehenna as signifying limited, limited and curative punishment, and both he and Clement, along with others, say that everlasting aeonian, that's a Greek word punishment, is uh, consistent with universal reconciliation. That it's an age of punishment which God uh, puts people to, um, to experience. Now, the early church Christians taught that Christ, because he went after he died, he went to the spirits in prison and preached to them that were in Hades. He went and preached, he announced, in fact, if I remember from the Greek, he did it with a loud voice. I taught it that it was an announcement, but uh, the uh, King James translated that he preached, that's in 1 Peter, to the spirits there. With this in mind, many held that he released all that were in Hades at that time. He said, I've overcome it. I've had the victory. You now can come out. That was an early church belief. And that it supports the idea that repentance beyond the grave is possible. Now, keep it in context so I don't get in deeper trouble than I get in. We know you don't want to join that club. Uh, the way I try to explain it is, it would be like being born and living, and then when you're 15 years old, committing a crime where you're gonna spend your entire life in prison until you're 85, and then you get out. What kind of life was it, okay? So you don't wanna spend your afterlife in a place that is for curative purposes. This is not downplaying afterlife difficulty, but it does place God and the gospel and his victory through Christ in a different light than what is uh, taught through orthodoxy. And so when Jesus says he has the keys to uh, the Hades and to death, I believe that, all right? So additionally, in early church, prayers were offered for the dead, not suggesting it, but they were. It could have been part of a departure from the faith, but they were offered and it would be an absurd practice if the idea was they can't change their mind after this life. Now I know in the body that we have just conditioned ourselves to believe they're gone, that's it. But in the early church, they did offer up prayers for the departed that maybe the recalcitrant, maybe a mother or fathers or members prayed, let them, let them break, let them bow quickly before you, Lord. Who knows, okay? But I'm just giving you the history of what was given to uh, us. Um, today to be able to kind of make some decisions. 
the first comparatively complete systematic theology statement of doctrine ever given to the world was by Clement of Alexandria in AD 180. That's how long it took, 180 years after, well, the birth of Christ, 176 years. And universal reconciliationism was one of its tenets. It's right in there, check it. And then as stated, the first complete presentation of Christianity as a system was by Oregon in 220, and universal reconciliation, as I explained, was explicitly contained therein. Truly, universal reconciliationism was the prevailing doctrine in uh, Christendom as long as Greek prevailed as the language. But as soon as Latin crept in enough and took over, the meaning of the Greek words were lost. The Latin translation of those Greek words by Jerome got in there, and pretty soon we started listening to Augustine and reading the Latin version of the mistranslated Greek words, and eternal punishment came up as a result. Total reconciliationism was lesser and lesser known or taught as the Greek language faded and the Latin language came about. And listen, when Latin was at its preeminent point in church history, the church was at its darkest place. Just, you can make that connection. When Greek was replaced by Latin and that was preeminent, you can see the darkest places in history. When they started going back, Erasmus and others who started to learn the Greek and understand the Greek, we started to have the Age of Enlightenment, we started to have a revolution, we had the Reformation, and, and all of the things started happening when Greek started coming back into play. But as long as we were under the language of the Latins, we continued to abide by Augustine and others' views uh, through that language. Not a single writer among those described there were writers who spent their time describing the heresies that were present. Not a single one of them ever suggests that total reconciliationism was a living heresy. None of them. And it was believed by many, if not the majority, but certainly by many of the greatest early church uh, leaders that it was a tenet of the faith. I mention it today, and it's like we, I mean, we hope all things, we believe all things. This is Paul. We can at least hope it. We can believe it. And now we have some background to say, maybe this is possible. But, and, and yet it becomes a heresy. When Jesus says, I have the keys to Hades and the death, I believe it's the death. And he has the keys to what goes on there. Not a single creed for 500 years expresses any idea contrary to universal restorationism or is in favor of eternal punishment. Not one, 500 years. With the exception of the arguments of Augustine in 420, there is not an argument known to have been framed against universal reconciliationism for at least 400 years after Christ uh, lived and any of the ancient leaders, all right? So additionally, while the councils that assembled in various parts of Christendom got together and they made anathema, they made forbidden, any doctrine that they considered heretical, uh, no ecumenical council, not one single council for more than 500 years condemned total reconciliation. Though it had been advocated in every century by the principal scholars and the most revered saints. So then as late as AD 400, Jerome says, listen, the word is plerique in the Latin, most people, the word's plerique, Jerome says most people believe in this total reconciliation. And Augustine said, quam plurima, uh, excuse me, quam plurimi, very many people believe 
in this total reconciliationism. So it was in the hands then, 420, 480, Augustine, Latin church, that we start to say, we need to start talking about eternal punishment. Because most people, very many people, according to these guys say, are believing this, this, this wrong interpretation, right? The most celebrated of the earlier advocates of endless punishment were all heathen born. What that means is they came from Gnostic or pagan backgrounds, joined the church, and brought in the views of eternal punishment with them. None uh, who supported eternal punishment came from the Greek culture, not one, all right? And Tertullian was the first to promote eternal uh, torture, followed by Augustine, and then Minica, uh, before that, Minicus Felix. Those are the three main names that we have in early church leaders who promoted eternal punishment, and that was 300 plus years before, I mean, after Christ. All of those guys that I just mentioned were ignorant of the Greek. They were all Latin uh, guys. The first advocates of reconciliationism after the apostles were all Greeks in whose mother tongue the New Testament was written and when they read it, they knew what was being said there. Today, we talk about Aeonian punishment and Aeonian place and age-based people. No, 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 that means this. And, but that is not what the Greeks, and we know that by the record. To them, total reconciliation was present in the Greek versions of the Bible, and here is one of the best supports we find looking to the early church for direction. The Latin-based leaders were supportive of eternal torments. The Greek-based leaders totally endorsed reconciliationism, all right? So the beautiful thing about the Greek-inspired view is that, listen carefully, there was nothing in their non-biblical literature there was nothing in their non-biblical literature to support total reconciliation. You get that? The Greeks did not have a body of literature that they referred to that taught them the idea that all people would be reconciled to God. So we know they didn't borrow it from their cultural leanings. They got it from the scripture. That is such an important point. Now, if the Greeks had this big open volume of all kinds of leanings toward open uh, total reconciliationism, and then we found it finding its way into the church, we could say, well, that was Greek influence. But they don't. That's the beautiful thing about the Greek readers and writers of the New Testament. The fact suggests that it was their view in the good news and that Jesus has had the victory and that there is a syncretist understanding of God offering, men responding, and but God getting his way, uh, that led them to their conclusion. Additionally, ecclesiastical historians and the best biblical scholars agree that the prevalence of uh, total reconciliationism in the early centuries was there. From the days of Clement of Alexandria to Gregory of Nicaea to Theodore of Mopustia, the great theologians and teachers, almost without exception, were universal reconciliationists. Uh, the first theological school in Christendom, it was in Alexandria, taught universalism for more than 200 years. Uh, all recorded Christendom from 1 AD to 430, there were six main Christian schools, okay? Those dates were from AD 170 to 430. There were six schools. Four of them were ta taught total reconciliationism the fifth taught eternal punishment, and one did not, there's no record of what they taught. So in all of recorded Christendom, that is what we have in terms of the schools. The three earliest Gnostic sects 
uh, the Basildians, the Carpocratians, and the Valentinians between 117 and 132 were all condemned by Christian writers for their heretical views described in writing. Each one of them taught total reconciliation. That doctrine was never laid to their charge for being heretical. These are facts that we have from that source. So the first defense of Christianity against infidelity puts the defense of universalism kind of there. Celsius charged that the Christian's God, Celsius charged that the Christian God was cruel because he subjected people afterward to fire and to burning. And Oregon replied that God's fire is curative, that he's a consuming fire because he consumes the sin and not the sinner. Uh, again, for emphasis, Oregon was a huge proponent of reconciliationism and was bitterly opposed and attacked for his various opinions, but never confronted for his universalist in that sense, views back in the day. In fact, the very council that anathematized organism eulogized people who taught reconciliationism. Uh, just really quickly, the lists of errors given by Methodius, Pamphilus, Eusebius, Marcellus, Euthanasius, and Jerome all attack heresies. None of them opposed uh, the presence of uh, total reconciliationism within the body of other heretics work. Looking at all these lists of heresies in the church, total reconciliation was not one of them. There's a guy called Epiphanius. He's known as the hammer of the heretics. That was his name, the hammer of the heretics. He describes 80 verses, excuse me, he describes 80 heresies in his writings. Here are the 80 heresies, total reconciliationism, universalism as it was known then, it is not among them. Okay, Justinian, who was a, uh, he, uh, he tried to close theological schools. He tried to close Christian churches. He was a half pagan emperor. He tried to shut them all down that taught total reconciliationism. He tried to stop it, but it was so big that they, he couldn't do it. And so he didn't have the support of the church. They couldn't shut them down for this reason because it was so universal. So if the idealists and the historicists and the partial preterists and the futurists believe that the Hades is still in place and the great white throne judgment and the casting of its inhabitants into the lake of fire awaits us, what is the view of all this to a full preterist who thinks Jesus did in fact return and with him initiated the first resurrection, emptying of Hades, that was done, and the manning of the, it, it, it initiated the great white throne judgment upon those who were in it, which is followed by the casting into the lake of fire if their names are not in the book of life. How does the full preterist see all this since the other side sees it all in the future? I must it admit here, the views are endless. There's called Pantelist views, comprehensive gracers, preterist noyanist views, simple preterist views. The list goes on and on and on about what people say will happen since everything in scripture has been fulfilled at the time of Christ coming back. So let me reel it all back in and try to explain really quickly. I see Jesus suffering for the sins of the world. And so it's not a limited atonement, it was a universal atonement. If he suffered for the sins, the sins were paid for, except for the sin of lacking faith. 
because you're refusing what God is offering in the syncretist view. You're saying, I'm not going to receive it. I'm going to be rebellious. I love the darkness more than the light. I don't care what God sends through the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to receive it. And so we're responsible for that. And he paid for all of sin except for the sin of faithlessness. And he died. He went to Hades. He preached the good news to them. And then he took those who were in paradise with him and to heaven. I see the apostles sharing the good news and, and living with living earthly Israel. That's what they were to do. And the Gentile world too that was around there warning them of impending judgment coming within 40 years. I personally see Jesus completing all his work by returning like a high priest coming out of the Holy of Holies saying it's done. God has accepted my offering with judgment and with reward in 70 AD. And at that time, I believe, you may not of course, but I believe Hades was emptied out and that they all went before the great white throne judgment and uh, those whose names were not written in the Lamb's book of life were cast into the lake of fire, which I am convinced is the consuming fire that God is because it's in the presence of Jesus and the Lamb. I mean, the Lamb and the angels. That, I believe, has occurred. All of the Hades done. At this point, I see the Hades gone forevermore. The afterlife, he died, he went to hell, he went to Sheol, he went to Hades, I think is done. I think it's fulfilled with him coming out of the Holy of Holies. Emptied, it plays no more role, this dark covered place, in the uh, afterlife workings of God. Since Jesus introduced the resurrection of the dead at the advent of his coming, that's when the resurrection of the dead continued forward. He came back, the dead rose, he took his church. I believe that resurrection is entirely spiritual. Spiritual bodies being given to, uh, by God to everybody according to his will. That's what scripture says. He will give everybody according to his will. Goodwill, this is 1 Corinthians 15, the bodies that he wants, resurrected bodies he wants, some to life eternal, some to damnation. And I believe that at death, all people since the end of the age in 70 AD experience a rapture, they experience an immediate judgment, and they receive their eternal bodies as God wills from him. Those who are his by faith, enter into his kingdom and they are with him forever and ever skipping all this second death stuff that we've talked about and in accordance with early church beliefs those who are not believers will be cast into the lake of fire how they're entering into the presence of the lamb and his angels and if you haven't been covered by the blood and you're in a body of the damned the purgative process begins how long it takes, I don't know, but it's a rubbing away of fire and brimstone, curative, causing everybody probably in the end to bow down, confess, believe, and it's, we can only confess the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Stay with me. Since all who enter this lake of fire are physically dead, right? And all who enter the lake of fire are spiritually dead, are they not? They have not believed in Christ, they have died physically, so they've experienced two forms of death. The lake of fire is called the second death. That hurts, where loss is experienced. What exactly is dying in the second death? What is dying 
in the second death if they're already spiritually dead and they're already physically dead. This is where Ellen G. White came up with they're being annihilated. That's what's dying. They are completely being annihilated. To answer this, ask yourself if the lake of fire called the second death, what is the first death? What is the first death? If the lake of fire is the second death, what's the first? Okay? I suggest the first death was a spiritual death, not physical. When God told Adam, if you eat of that tree, you will surely, he says, the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Adam ate of that tree. That day, he did not die physically. He didn't die physically for 930 years. That day, he died spiritually. That's the first death. The first death is spiritual death, okay? Jesus calls this the second death. What could the second death be, especially in light of the fact that it's in the presence of the Lamb and his angels? It's, according to early church leaders, curative. What is dying in the second death? Here is where the annihilationism comes in, but I suggest something different. Since they are already physically and spiritually dead, and since the universal teaching of the early church was total reconciliationism, and since I do not believe that God and Jesus lose to Satan or lose to human will, and since I believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, and you can't confess Jesus as Lord but by the Holy Spirit, and since I believe that the, all those who enter the lake of fire will be hurt but not destroyed, and that they will have their part in the lake of fire but not the whole of it which was created for Satan and his angels, I suggest that the second death they are experiencing is, listen now, the death of their spiritual death. They died a spiritual death. They were born spiritually dead. They went to the lake of fire dead. What's dying there is their spiritual death. The curative process is bringing out of them spiritual life, which comes in probably a horrific manner which all who believe on Christ escape. But I propose that the lake of fire second death is God putting to death the spiritual death the inhabitants of the lake already possess. It's the death of the death, and it's not good. You want to escape it. Now, Dave pointed something out to me last week, which is of great benefit to this view. Just consider it. When Jesus walked the earth, John the Baptist said something that, like a lot of things in Scripture, I have interpreted one way, because it was the only way I could really get it. And it never really made total sense to me. Maybe it did to you, but this is what Dave said. It's in Luke 3.16 and in Matthew, and John says to the people, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He has two baptisms in his hand. Dave and I talked. Dave believes this, he's describing two mutually exclusive, respective baptisms Jesus brings in his ministry to humankind. I come and I baptize with the Holy Spirit and I baptize with fire. You choose, is the way Dave kind of talked about it. The first baptism of the Holy Spirit and then he also has another baptism which is one of fire. In my estimation, those who receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit escape the baptism of fire, 
which is awaiting those who go to the lake of fire after this life. This makes great sense when you consider that baptism is being going into, and it's called a lake of fire. This makes great sense in that baptism is like unto death. We are baptized unto his death, and we are raised to new life. They are being, if Jesus is baptizing those after this life in the lake of fire with fire, they are being baptized unto death, the death of their spiritual death, and they're being raised to another life. What it looks like, we don't know. I differ with Dave. Dave sees them as mutually exclusive. You either are baptized by the Holy Spirit or you're baptized with fire. I see them as coming hand in hand. I believe that when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit here on earth, you will be baptized by fire here, by the trials and things we go through here, that it is a tempering, purging experience we go through here. Uh, but it's just not nearly as painful and difficult. Those who are not baptized by the Holy Spirit here go, and they're first baptized in the lake of fire, hoping for, waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, by which they are then reconciled, and Jesus opens up the gates to, hell, uh, to the lake of fire and lets them out. So those who are baptized, first baptized by fire after this life will afterward be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit in this life will afterward here, you're gonna escape the second death, but here you, I believe, that you will also experience a baptism of fire by being a believer. But the real point of it is, whether Dave's right or I'm right, is that Jesus came and he baptizes with both. And with baptism being an indicator of being buried with Christ, and that and as a symbol of death, I can't help but believe that that's what that lake of fire is. And we have misread it all this time as just weak. They're going there and they're just gonna suffer. Just suffer and God is gonna be happy and he's gonna rejoice over their screams for eternity. I cannot understand that God relative to everything else scripture has to say. I do understand punishment, but I don't understand. So... Jesus says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of the death, of the, of the Hades and of the death, to that age and to us now, forever having those keys. And with all of that behind us, we'll continue on with verse 19 and move forward. I think we'll finish uh, Revelation uh, chapter one next week and move into two, which is the churches. Questions or comments? Yes, thank you. Wait for the mic. No, no, wait. We have one rule here. Two, you have to say your name. Okay, my name's Elaine. Um, uh, okay, so if um, <clears throat> the original words that of the Old Testament, New Testament were in either Hebrew or Aramaic, then it was, they were written down probably by scholars of the day in Greek, because a right. lot of people were illiterate, of course, but they had to record it. And then it's later put into Latin, which corrupted the Greek, which is very complicated. And now our scriptures today, are they more from Latin or are they from the Greek? Because we have so many scholars today that know the ancient language? Yeah, great question. For one, we didn't have all the manuscript evidence and we have like uh, 3,000 times the manuscript evidence of Greek manuscripts now. 
And so that helps us produce these translations like the ESV, which is much, which is based on the Greek and wasn't necessarily uh, corrupted by the Latin influence. However, when Erasmus and Luther and those were translating the Bible, Tyndale and those guys, they were translating often from uh, Jerome's uh, Textus Receptus, which was in the Latin. And so it was, they literally read that thing and they said, I don't know what Bible this is. It was so messed up. So Erasmus studied the Greek. He's the first guy who started to look at the Greek to compare. And that's when it started to get cleaned up. So that's the best way I can explain it. Yeah, great question. Anybody else? Back here, Brother Ray. My name is Ray. Uh, Sean and John, it tells us that there is a sin unto death. And if an individual hasn't uh, performed that sin, then we're to pray for him. Mm. Now, what is the sin unto death? And where do they go in terms of these Hades and uh, death? From my estimation, what I know, the sin unto death, truly contextually speaking, now there's a big debate. I'll have to just give you a quick debate. Some say that it is saying that Jesus did miracles by the power of the devil. That's, and they say that because Jesus says, you will not be for, you'll be forgiven if you blaspheme me, but you, won't, but, but you won't be forgiven in this world or the world to come if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which is when you say, I do my miracles by the spirit of the devil. Most orthodoxy today, a lot of them say, this is a really debated topic, but they say that is the sin unto death. I, f I find that kind of absurd because I think it's so limited and, and I just don't see many people saying that Jesus, it just didn't, doesn't work for me, even though it can be supported in scripture. I think it is saying that there is one sin and that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to call all people to receive Christ to believe on Christ, and he calls that one-way street, God calling and calling. The sin that will not be forgiven in this life or in the life to come is disbelief, is saying, I reject the Holy Spirit's message, not forgiven here or in the world to come. How can you erase that sin? By believing. So prior to coming to know Christ, we are all guilty of the unforgivable sin, and we will all go to the lake of fire. But once we have believed here or there, then we would receive a forgiveness for our sins and be forgiven of that unforgivable sin. Does that make sense? So to put it just another way for clarity, if you don't believe in Christ and the Holy Spirit is calling to you to believe, you are in the presence of committing the unforgivable sin because that's the only one for which there's no forgiveness. He paid for everything else. But when you believe, that is, you've now been forgiven. And that's how I would see it. Any other thing, comment, question? All right, let's pray. Get out of Dodge. Lord, uh, 
help us to understand these questions and these, these insights, these comments, your word. And um, this petition, Lord, that we'll have a heart of understanding and a heart that's soft, uh, one that seeks to give you the benefit of the doubt and rather than implicate you and cause you to be something that you're not, whether on, whether on what we perceive as the good side or the bad side. We just pray that we will see you in truth. We pray that we will know you and your son, whom you sent, in truth. And these other ideas that we'll learn from and we'll grow by, but we probably won't be able to really know completely until after this life. But in the meantime, we continue to search because we know that there's value in that and you tell us, search the scriptures. And so we do. And we just pray you'll help us with our walk and you'll help grow us in the way you want and you'll help us to accept the path you've given us to walk. Help us to accept your will in our lives. Help us to receive whatever you're giving us as the best thing from your hands and move us to greater faith because of it. And we pray for people who are suffering through so many different things and uh, pray for Emily, pray for the people of Tennessee, pray for Jody and her addictions, Jarvis and cancer, our sister Heidi and her cancer. We pray for Thave's knee replacement surgery, for Taylor to overcome his addiction, Dean that he'll turn to Jesus, Jerry will get well, Kathy to have her macular degeneration hold so she can keep her eyesight, and Kathleen that her eyes, physical eyes, spiritual eyes may be open to Christ. Anybody else not mentioned here, Lord, who's on our heart and our minds, we pray for them. We pray for our viewers at home, those who are seeking truth, to keep seeking. And um, we just love you and, and need you in all things and pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.
Without me, he can't do nothing.